millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... I'm talking about power, control, and the fight for our future with the writer and filmmaker Raul Martinez and his new book, Creating Freedom. Raul Martinez is a writer, artist, and award-winning filmmaker. Creating Freedom, which we're going to be talking about today, is his first book. It is informed by over a decade of research and is accompanied by a documentary series of the same name. Episode 1, The Lottery of Birth, produced, written and co-directed by Raoul, premiered in 2012. It was nominated for Best Documentary at London's Raindance Film Festival and went on to win the Artivist Spirit 2012 Award at Hollywood's Artivist Festival. It has been translated into several languages and the second film is currently in production. Raoul lives and works in London, where his paintings have been selected for exhibition in the National Portrait Gallery. Raoul, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Great to be here. So we're going to be talking about this book, Creating Freedom, Power, Control and the Fight for Our Future. And the book starts off with arguments around the ideas of responsibility mm-hmm. and I guess the extent to which fundamentally we can be responsible for who we are, how we started out, who we've become. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about that idea first of all. Yeah, so that's yeah, that's the first chapter. It's called Luck. And it really explores the idea, which I think emerges from a, a common thinking era, that because we make choices, we're most of the time responsible for, for what we do. Um, you know, this belief can be, this assumption, if you like, can be found in many religious traditions, in our criminal justice system, in the way we think about punishment and reward. But actually, when you think about it, there's very little, if any, evidence to support this assumption. And everything we've learned scientifically about human cognition and behaviour seems to undermine it, and there doesn't seem to be a single scientific shred of evidence to support it. So, for me, the simplest way to make this argument against this form of responsibility is to say, yes, we make choices, but we make choices with a brain that we didn't choose. And, you know, it's deceptively simple, because actually the ramifications of this idea are, are quite profound. But before we go on, it's probably just worth noting a few kind of common pitfalls in thinking about it. So one is, just to allay a common fear, yes, we make choices, and yes, we can change and learn and act on our reasons and beliefs in a rational way. I think there's certainly ample evidence to support that thesis, but that's a very different thing to saying that we are ultimately responsible for what we do in the lives we lead. Our choices reflect our values, our beliefs, our habits, and those are ultimately formed by numerous forces, environmental and genetic. A common response is, yes, but we can choose to change ourselves. So we might be, you know, very ignorant and have a number of moral flaws when we're young, but we have, surely we have intelligence, we can learn, we can read and we can change ourselves and become more responsible. I think the point is that at any given moment in our life, the decision to change and the degree of success in making that change will ultimately be determined by how we already are as yeah. a result of genes and experience. Well, I was going to say that obviously, you know, we, we could talk about ways in which we're influenced by our, unknowingly sometimes by our environment, obviously how we've grown up, whether we're wealthy or not, but also just the, you know, the everyday outdoor environment is impacting on us all the time in lots of ways, to the extent that it, you know, it impacts on our genes in ways, you know, now yeah. that we're only just starting to understand 
But then surely part of that environment in the society we grow up in is also like laws and constantly being told you shouldn't kill people and stuff like that. Those are environmental impacts as much as anything else. Right, so once you understand how, if you like, sensitive our identities are to external influences, then you begin to think about the potential for shaping human beings. And this potential can lead, I think, to wonderful results and, you know, the best of culture. But it can also be um, exploited, if you like, to control, to undermine, to indoctrinate. And I think our society and every society has many examples of both. And I spend a good deal of the book trying to kind of pick apart the mechanisms of control to lead us down particular paths of, of thought and, and, and behaviour which tend to serve the status quo. So yes, I mean, we're, we're sensitive to our environment and we can use, for example, in the criminal justice system, it, I think it's perfectly legitimate to have laws and penalties to dissuade people from acting in certain ways and have rewards to encourage them. Um, but again, to place limits on these kind of things. I'll get you to tell the, the example that you use at, at the start of the book about the guy who develops a brain tumour, the sort of criminal case. Yeah. David Eagleman, who you talk about in the book, yeah. has been on the show before. We've had Absolutely. this conversation about neuro-law. I find it a really fascinating area, but it is one where you can very quickly... You know, it seems like a really simple idea, and then you start to look at the, the implications of what that would actually mean. Tell us this, the example that you use. Right, so yeah, I, I found this example in reading David Eagleman and then looked into a few other similar ones. Basically, there's this guy who develops, I think, strong paedophilic tendencies, a desire to seek out sexual stimulation related to children. Well, very specifically, we should say that he's looking at images on the internet. Yeah, he's looking at images on the internet. And this seems to be an overwhelming urge which he's unable to control. Now, this leads to um, a court case, and it looks pretty certain he's going to be found guilty. And I think in the run-up to his sentencing, he goes in the hospital, having suffered from terrible headaches, and they find a brain tumour. And this changes everything, really, because they, they realise, OK, well, this explains why this, these dramatic urges, these powerful urges, which have only emerged relatively recently, were not present before and have led to this form of behaviour. And they remove the tumour and they go away. Right, so they remove the tumour, they go away, the tumour actually comes back, and the urges come back. So there's a, a clear correlation. Yeah. And from the point of view of the legal system, and I think you know, our intuitions would follow, this exculpates him. You know, we no longer regard this man as truly responsible for having these urges and actually for doing something which most of us would regard as kind of reprehensible. I think this is a, it's a really interesting example, though, really well chosen, because I think, obviously, you know, we all think of paedophilia as, like, you know, the worst possible crime. So immediately you go, oh, my God, this is, this is really awful. But at the same time, we're talking about somebody who, in this particular instance... Clearly there are obviously victims of it, but the victims of it are at a remove because he's looking at images that already exist. I think when this becomes really interesting in terms of the idea of sort of culpability, when we would talk about, you know, somebody who might have had a brain tumour and then got out and murdered somebody. Yeah. Whereas for all the, you know, the ideas of this person's culpability or not, there's still a dead person yeah. that needs somehow recompense or retribution. So, Retribution I, being a particularly pointed word yeah. to use there. So, I'll, I'll just jump on that <laughs> yeah, word yeah. and say, look, I think if we're going to be rational, if we're going to think carefully about human behaviour and how, as a society, we should react to forms of behaviour which mm-hmm. are very um, detrimental, then we have to discard the whole notion of retribution. It's no longer defensible. If we're talking about a psychopath, I like to say, yes, a psychopath will make many morally horrendous choices, but they won't include choosing the brain of a psychopath. And neither you or I or anyone else we know can take credit for not having a brain of a psychopath. Mm -hmm. Now, if you did have the brain of a psychopath, guess what? You do what psychopaths do. So if you can prove to me or anyone else that you've chosen not to have that brain, then great, then I can give you some credit. But actually, if our choices follow from the brain we have, and the brain we have results from forces we don't control, then the notion of blame and genuine culpability disappears. So then the important and major question is, how do we think about the criminal justice system? Does this mean that we just let psychopaths and paedophiles walk free and corrupt bankers? No, of course it doesn't. What it means is that we change the fundamental rationale from exacting revenge for the past to improving the future. We'll come back to that in a moment before we get on to, to punishment, which, which I, w- I want to talk about, because that, that whole sort of side of it obviously informs that discussion. 
But also, let's just go back down to the simple idea of look, first of all. Yes. So I want to talk about how, when we look at and realise how much of our lives, how much of, you know, where we happen to be born in the world or how wealthy we happen to be born or the intelligence that we were born with or the genes that we were born with, how much all of that, the very fact that, you know, our species is still alive when 99% of other species that lived have been wiped out and the very fact that we happen to be alive means that we have a, you know, a a path of descendants that goes all the way, you know, back to the, you know, the, uh, the early dawn of man. All of these, like, incredible aspects of luck, the fact that we happen to be born at this time in, in, in history and not in the Middle Ages and, yeah. you know, dying at 30 years old of the plague or whatever. Once we realise how lucky we are, what should that tell us? What does that realisation actually mean, do you think, for, like, how we should think about our place in relation to other people? It's a big question. It's kind of turning things on its head. But just I'll answer it in one sec, but just following on yeah. from what you're saying regarding luck, I think it's quite important to bring in the concept of chaos theory and the butterfly effect. Because often people will say, well, hang on, you know, here's one person who's had a difficult childhood and they ended up doing wonderful things and, you know, defied every expectation and became very successful and a decent member of society. And here's someone with a similar childhood and they ended up in jail for murdering someone. So how can you say it's just down to luck? Clearly they made choices. So I think to make sense of, of that kind of example, we have to bring in the notion or the butterfly effect. I think most of us have heard of it. You know, the, the flap of a butterfly's wings in one part of the world might be able to cause a hurricane somewhere else. The idea that just very small changes in the initial conditions of a closed system mm-hmm. can produce dramatic consequences over time. So although we can't perceive or make sense of every aspect of the causal chain, it does seem that luck is a decisive force in all of our lives. So yes, as individuals, how do we respond to that? I think getting rid of notions of credit and blame are the first things that we have to grapple with. We begin to, I think, become more cognizant, more aware of our own privilege when we have privilege. That privilege might be based on our gender, our our race, our economic circumstance, our level of intelligence, even the way we look, our physical abilities. These are things we cannot take credit for. And the flip side of that is people in bad situations, people who are poor, people who are on benefits, refugees... Um, or even those who are particularly unlikable or seem to have a terrible moral sense. We can't actually blame those individuals for the way they are or the circumstances they found themselves in. Um, If we want to make sense of any of these behaviours, we have to, I think, attempt a more searching explanation. You know, imagine a plant. If we see a shriveled plant, we don't blame the plant. We go, well, did it get enough light? What's the soil like? Um, What's the atmosphere like? And, you know, humans aren't so different in, in that respect. We're a product of of, of these environmental forces. So I think, actually, once we dispense with blame and credit and, you know, the deeper notion of responsibility, there are a number of profound implications for politics and economics. For me, at least, one of the things that excites me most is what it means for notions like compassion and empathy. So I think it really grounds these concepts in a very rational way. I think most of us find these ideas quite inspirational, you know, find them in spiritual traditions, and they generally seem quite positive. But here we see they're actually a product, not simply of being a good person, but a product of understanding, mm-hmm. a product of actually, I think, operating according to more realistic, um, a more realistic model of, of the world and, and how things work. So just to finish off on that point, I mean, in very broad terms, I think the implications are for a more egalitarian society, one with less inequality, far more uh, equality of opportunity, and... I mean, there's actually another set of implications, which I'll just briefly touch on, which is that if we don't create ourselves, if we're not the true author of our own identity, then who is, you Mm -hmm. know? And I think it's incumbent upon every individual and in every community to constantly question the way society functions, look at the way the media works, look at the way the education works, and tease out the the inevitable biases that exist, which send us down one route or another. And so I think, yeah, there are a number of serious political implications and moral implications from following through this line of thought. I'm Eric Schlosser, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Putting aside for a moment how we would like things to be, and particularly around you know, the idea of culpability and blame, I want to talk about punishment. We obviously do all, you know, already have a, a system, a penal system, and you know, one that has been long-standing. I want to talk about the what the philosophy of our penal system is, you know, why 
do we punish offenders? I don't think there's a clear, consistent rationale for it. I, I think the system has evolved. Um, I don't think that's the right word. Let's say it's developed according to a number of prejudices which have been prevalent in society. You know, notions like an eye for an eye, uh, retribution. I think they're certainly they're at the heart of that system. But there have been other moderating influences that try to take into account the fact that, for example, minors have a brain which is less developed. Um, You're talking about children, not yeah. people who dig coal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, the children. And so, you know, the way you'll be treated as a 17-year-old the night before your 18th birthday will be very different to the day after. Um, so that's quite a, a kind of crude... Or supposedly. Supposedly. But that's quite a crude distinction when, 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 you, when you break it down in that way. But it's an attempt, at least, to take into account that brains are different. People are different. These moderate, moderating influences do exist, but actually it's a kind of... It's a rather messy mix and blend of rationalisations and justifications, and lawyers are consistently, if you like, exploiting these... the confused nature of our criminal justice system, bringing in... I think the emergence of neuroscience and the, mm-hmm. the forms of evidence which are now admissible because of the discoveries that have been made about the functioning of the brain, it, it's kind of testing these uh, assumptions more and more and one response has been to say and you know this has been put forward by a number of legal theorists uh, and to some extent can be found in a number of court rulings it's basically the idea that okay perhaps the universe is deterministic perhaps our brains are the product of numerous forces we don't control but surely most people most of the time can act in a rational way and isn't that really what counts if we can prove someone's rational Surely we can then say they're responsible and accountable. I find this terribly unconvincing, and you know, you can try and pick holes in it if you like. We can talk about that, but this seems to be one of the directions that theorists are going in in response, if you like, to the the mounting scientific evidence that seems to undermine traditional notions of responsibility. Well, I want, I want us to get to particularly. You talk about some examples. I mean, it would seem, I mean, it seems obvious to everybody, you know, at a glance that the penal system is broken and doesn't work. And that must be obvious to the people that work in it and run it as much as it is, and, you know, legislators and whatever, as much as it is to anybody else, to academics and theorists and stuff. Um, And we'll talk in a moment about some examples, little small-scale examples you talk about in the book about ways in which it could perhaps be done better. Specifically, there's this idea that, you know, we've become a system whereby prison is not necessarily for the prisoners. It's not necessarily about punishing the people that have committed the crimes. It's about everybody else. And it's not necessarily a deterrent for the people who commit crimes because, you know, we, we've seen that that's, that's, that's clearly not something that works. But it acts more as a deterrent for everybody else. Yeah. So I think it's quite important to, to highlight these statistics because I think our general intuitions about the way punishment works and the rationale behind it you know, lead us astray quite often. So, yeah, there's kind of two sides to the deterrence argument, which basically, once we get rid of retribution, this is the next big rationalisation for punishment, is deterrence. And it makes a lot more sense, but it actually brings a whole new set of problems. So, first of all, punishment, you know, doesn't really seem to deter criminals from re-offending. In fact, it does the opposite. Yeah, in many instances, we've seen an anti-deterrent effect. So, for example, in some states and some countries, when the um, death penalty has been introduced, we see a rise in violent crime, not, not a reduction. And when it's been abolished, we see a reduction, which is you know, the opposite of what you'd expect if you thought, you know, if you're working on the assumption that harsher punishments are going to act as more effective deterrents. Um, in the US and UK, rates of reoffending hover between like 60 and 65% within a three to five year period. So that's pretty high. So most people are going into jail, coming out and committing crime and going back in. Now, there are a number of interesting reasons for that. But the key point of logic here is it's not, it's not a very effective system in, in, in terms of reducing uh, or preventing criminals from reoffending. So the other side of the argument is that these people are being punished, if you like, to prevent the rest of us, make it less likely that the rest of us are going to break the law. We see that those people who act in that way end up 
in a cell, in a prison. And, you know, this becomes part of our model of the world and, and it helps us to resist that course of action if we find ourselves in a, with a, in a similar circumstance. There's a, I think, was it an Oliver Wendell Holmes quote in there where he says, I would say to, a, you know, someone I was about to execute, imagine yourself as you're basically a soldier sacrificing your life for the good of the rest of society, basically. That's the best way to describe it. Yeah, yeah, I find it a really powerful quote. And, and that was from early in the 20th century, and so he, you know, he was operating on the assumption that, yeah, moral responsibility doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, it's not your fault that you, you did that, but basically we're going to kill you anyway. I hope you don't mind, it's for the betterment of society. But this is actually, for anyone who kind of thinks, oh, that's reasonable enough, at least it helps society. And this is a really crude form of utilitarian logic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's the same logic would say, if five people are sick and, and need organ donations, let's take one healthy person, kill them, and save the five. Now... I would hope, you know, you, me, most listeners would become horrified by this. It's a horrible abuse of human rights. But if you're talking about a kind of a crude maximisation of well-being, then you could justify that from action. But in a sense, that is what we're doing on a daily basis, mm. yearly basis, often with some of the most vulnerable, mentally ill and most disadvantaged members of our society. So as Daniel Dennett puts it, it's, it's, it's a kind of um, a double price these prisoners are paying. Mm. So not only do they get dealt a bad hand by society often live lives most of us have no experience of, can't even imagine, um, all kinds of deprivations. We then, instead of offering help and support to overcome that, we place them in horribly violent institutions where the the threat of of rape and physical abuse are incredibly common and prevalent. Let's talk about some ways in which it could be done better then. And I think you talk about a few examples in the book. One of them, there's a particular example that I want to talk about, which is in Norway. Because this is a prison. It's not some, you know, some other... This is very specifically a a prison. It's also not a white-collar prison. This is the prison where there were, like, rapists and murderers. Absolutely, yeah. So this is a prison on the island of Bastoy in Norway. And it boasts the lowest re-offending rates in Europe. And it also happens to be one of the most humane prisons on the planet. I mean, some would criticise it for this, but I mean, on the surface at least, you know, these people, they've been deprived of their freedom and their liberty. But other than that, the environment in which they are incarcerated is actually rather pleasant. They have many opportunities to develop skills, to do courses, to shop for themselves and cook for themselves. They have to cook for themselves. Yeah, they have to cook. Yeah. Basically, the philosophy behind it is to help and rehabilitate rather than to punish. To the extent that they're punished, it's their liberty, um, the reduction of their liberty is considered, well, enough of a punishment. Beyond that, it's basically, I think, treating criminals, people who have broken the law, in a way, in a kind of naturalistic way, in a way that a doctor might treat someone who has... Um, suffering from a virus, um, you try to treat the problem rather than punish the person for being sick. I think that's a, a kind of clear way of, of looking at it. So the reoffending rate is something like 16%, or it, it was that a couple of years ago. And the average in Europe is closer to 70%. So it's a massive difference. And I think the lesson... I mean, there are... You know, Norway is, has a, its own particular context, but it's worth pointing out that, yeah, Norway has one of the lowest reoffending rates in Europe in general... On average, it's something like 30-35%. So this particular prison is, is even half of the reoffending rate in Norway. So that suggests to me, I mean, it's not a foolproof argument, it suggests to me that the more humane the prison, the more we treat people as human beings, actually give them opportunities to develop, grow, develop self-esteem, acquire new skills, the more likely we are to create individuals who are ready to be integrated back in society and contribute something. Now, this doesn't satisfy the powerful urge for retribution, but I think the deeper question is, should that be the goal? Mm -hmm. Or should it be actually to make society safer and to help individuals heal aspects, you know, pain and anger within themselves and develop and cultivate positive aspects of their character? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Raul Martinez. We're talking about his book, Creating Freedom. And we've been talking about punishment, Raul. So now let's switch that around and talk about reward. It's become, I think, in terms of when we talk about reward, we're obviously talking about, you know, pay and bonuses and the, the ability of a, of a person to make, you know, to make their fortune and things. And it's become, it would seem, not even that particularly extreme a belief within societies to suggest that if a person is rich, that's probably because, even if not that they deserve it, particularly just because, then they've worked hard. Whereas if a person's homeless, that's probably because there's something wrong with their character and they probably deserve it deep down. This sounds like an appalling idea, but it's it's not that weird. I think it's a hugely important idea for the system to function and to justify itself. The levels of inequality, particularly now, you know, they've been growing for a few decades, but particularly now, are almost without precedent in human history. So just to throw out a few numbers, we have 1% of humanity now owning as much wealth as as the other 99% combined. In the UK, it's lower than that, but still extreme. We have 10% of the population owning as much wealth as the other 90% combined. You know, this is a natural outcome of the functioning of a capitalist market system. Incredible inequality. And you concentrate not just wealth, but enormous power in the hands of a tiny few. And essentially the future of humanity is dictated by the decisions that this tiny minority of humanity make. You know, if you can decide where wealth goes, you decide what projects are started, you decide what people work on, all kinds of things. So when you have a system which is, produces such unequal outcomes, you need some kind of rationalisation for it. People aren't just going to be happy with that. They're not just going to accept. Just like when we had kings ruling over Britain and throughout Europe, you know, we had the notion of the divine right of king. It helps if people believe that you're there because God wants you to be there. Well, it also helps, you know, if you're a billionaire, um, that the rest of society believe that you possess that wealth because you deserve it. It's based on merit. Now, of course, I would argue even if it was based on merit, that doesn't mean you deserve it. That's a slightly different point. Mm -hmm. But even before we get to that, there are a whole load of issues that have to be worked through. So the majority of wealth at any given time is the product of inheritance. Now, by definition, inheritance is not something that we do much, um, that we work towards, that that, that we earn. It it happens to us, like our eye colour. So there's not a particularly strong argument in favour of of saying that someone deserves what they inherit. So the typical argument is simply that... Well, the person who possesses the wealth has the right to do with it what they want. If they want to give it to their children, then that's their right because it's their wealth. And, you know, you can say, okay, fair enough, but surely we have to balance that right against some other important rights. For example, the rights of children entering the world to 
um, enter a society with equal economic opportunities. Now, if we compare these rights, on the one hand, we have the right of doing what you want with your wealth. Now, if we take that away, that doesn't kill anyone. It doesn't leave anyone starving. It doesn't make anyone ill or homeless. On the other hand, if we take away the right of a child to enter a society with equal economic opportunities, it can lead and does lead to horrific outcomes, horrifically unjust outcomes. And so on balance, I think there's a very strong argument for a far more egalitarian society just based on the inheritance argument. But of course, that's not the only path to wealth. There are many other paths. Well, I just want to just stay on inheritance for a moment because, you know, another one of the the myths that have become like quite prevalent in society, in a sort of neoliberal society, is the idea of the discredited idea of like that wealth trickles down. If, if you have lots of people... If you have a few people making a lot of money, then that will gradually trickle down to the rest of society and make society itself. Like, you know, what is it? A high tide raises all boats and all that sort of thing. But taking that into the idea of of inheritance, you might also think that, you know, a rich man, he might have, you know, five sons and die and leave his money to those people, therefore distributing it a little bit. And after generation after generation, you might think that, that money itself might spread itself much wider. But actually what tends to happen with inheritance is it concentrates wealth within smaller and smaller groups of people as well. It does, yeah. And that, there have been a number of studies on this which just show the power of inherited wealth over generations. So, you know, looking five generations ago, you can see that what your grandparents were earning and the, and the sorts of wealth that they controlled is an incredibly powerful predictor of where you'll be in your life today, what kind of profession you'll have, where you'll live, the value of your property. So over long periods of time, the effects are extremely powerful. I think an important part of this picture, if we're going to bring history into it, is that the concentrations of wealth we see today in this country and and, across the developed world, lots of it, if you trace it back, we end up with slavery, we end up um, looking at colonialism and our imperial history and, and the British Empire, which involved being complicit in the deaths of many tens of millions of innocent people, there are actually very few, I don't know actually if there are any, paths to extreme wealth which are morally justifiable. Not extreme wealth. One way or another, you see people have been exploited along the way, it's come f- through inheritance. There are all kind of effects you, you, you can pick apart. But yeah, these these effects last for generations. They they they, um, they span centuries, and they have very little to do with merit. And, and it makes sense if you think about it, because the opportunities you have as a child, the education you receive, the kind of social network you have, the forms of nurturing that you have access to, they're heavily dependent on the material situation of of your parents and wider family and community. Just to finish off talking about the idea of reward as well. I mean, another way in which this seems so counterintuitive, you know, the idea of, of fewer and fewer people collating all of the all of the wealth, is just an unequal society is also an unhappier, a more violent and dangerous society. Yeah, so there's been pioneering work done on this in the last decade, summed up very nicely in the book The Spirit Level by Kate Pickett and, and Richard Wilkinson, where, you know, we, we are lucky enough now, if you like, to have enough data to observe these patterns across many societies, to actually compare the various social outcomes on a range of indicators, from teenage pregnancy and mental illness, numbers in prison. And again and again, what we see is there's a negative correlation between, well, sorry, a negative consequence of having a highly unequal society. And actually all these things tend to improve as we reduce inequality which is a happy result for those of us who think we ought to have an egalitarian society. But I don't think too surprising. Mm. Um, so I think the kind of the rational argument for redistributing wealth is extremely solid, extremely compelling. But there's a difference between having a good argument and having the power to actually implement what ought to happen. And power is so concentrated that even the, the evidence that exists out there, it's actually hard to turn that into com- common knowledge and actually shift the culture enough that people cease to believe that though those with wealth truly deserve it. And also to understand just how concentrated it, it is. I mean, poll after poll shows people don't... They have an incredibly distorted idea of the distribution of wealth in society. They assume it's far more equal than it actually is um, and are often shocked. And when asked, actually, you know, in, in like, say, a pie chart, to 
indicate what they think would be a fair distribution of wealth, so some inequality to reflect, uh, let's say, different in, in, levels of talent and, and, and effort that we expend. You know, it's a million miles away from the world that we actually have. So our intuitions are far more egalitarian than the world that we see. Well, let's, let's move on to talk about ways in which, you know, why that power is so concentrated. You look, in the second part of the book, you look at like a number of sort of aspects of, or different kinds of freedom, ways we think of freedom, we should say, you know, the freedom of the press, free elections, the free market. First of all, let's talk about ways in which our identities are formed, you know, those ideas about society that we have, uh, you know, have have come down from, you know, mentioned before, kings and religions to, you know, through the various revolutions to the capitalist society we now have. How is the identity that we have formed by outside influences? You know, I have, you know, I I think I'm me, I, you know, I have a good idea of, of what I'm like and that involves tastes and interests and things that have obviously been sort of like influenced by outside forces how am i how do i get to be me (laughs) i don't think there is a kind of an essential you i don't think so much getting to the essential you Mm -hmm. i mean yeah let's start from this point we have an identity we've had very little to do with forming it you know language we speak habits we have everything else it's happened to us so what what should we do well this question hit me when in my teens and it actually, you know, changed the course of my life and the path that I took. And my initial response was to try and question, to try and understand the forces that had shaped me. I think a key part of that is trying to create some emotional, psychological distance between, let, okay, let's say the essential me, mm-hmm. almost like a theoretical me, an ideal me, and the various attributes, values and beliefs that I currently hold. Because our emotional loyalties, our attachment to our identity can be an incredibly powerful obstacle to questioning, changing, and actually seeing things clearly. Because all of us have a model of the world which is profoundly flawed. Let's just, I mean, we should just begin with that as Mm. our assumption. For various reasons. But, you know, reality is infinitely complex. It's far easier to be wrong about something than right. So beginning with these assumptions, we can try and pick apart our influences. We can kind of say, okay, so what have been the major influences? Maybe my family, okay, well, they've taught me to... They kind of encourage loyalty to, let's say, this religious tradition. Um, my parents have always voted for this particular political party. They tend to treat people in this particular way, or maybe my, you know, my peer, the kind of music that I like. What's behind that? You know, what are the things that I find normal which actually aren't normal? They, they could be extreme. So I went through this process. One of the things I found, and I think it's quite pertinent given our current political landscape, is that the middle ground, let's say politically, but also just in turn, just culturally, what we regard as normal. It's not where extremes are avoided, it's where they're normalised. Yeah, it's the, with the idea of the Overton window. Yeah. The way that you, you, we can basically shift what was once upon a time and ex- uh, seems like an unacceptable view suddenly becomes normal. We see that the, the, the classic thing that's going on obviously now is any sort of discussion of of immigration that goes on, where the, you know, the, the centre ground has shifted so far to the right. Yeah, right. And, you know, it's not that they have all the the evidence uh, on their side. Quite, quite the opposite. Quite, quite the opposite. But looking, let's say, at the structure of the media, mm. again, it, it's given the way markets operate and given the concentration of ownership of the media, what outcomes would we expect? So, you know, in the US and UK, in most countries a handful of very, very large, powerful corporations own the vast majority of media. Their business model depends on advertising revenue from large corporations who can afford to advertise in their newspapers, on their TV shows, and being always pressured by market forces to reduce costs and increase profits, there's often less and less resources available to do serious investigative journalism, which increases dependency, on PR material supplied, once again, by the most powerful forces in our society. We look at the state, and, and again, we look at large corporations. So given that is the way that our media is, that's how it's um, constituted, what kind of outcomes would we expect? Surely we would expect outcomes which reflect the worldview, the biases, and the interests of those who, are most, who have most influence over the, um, the process of selecting news, um, of filtering out perspectives and, and selecting facts. I like to say, just imagine we had six months 
in which every media institution was owned not by a billionaire capitalist, which is you know, close to what we have now, but by a card-carrying communist. How do you think that would affect what was produced, the content of the mainstream media? And people go, you know, okay, we're going to end up with a very different kind of headlines and, and very different emphasis and a different set of perspectives. So I think one of the first things is just to understand we do not live in a neutral world. The f- information that reaches us hasn't reached us by accident. It doesn't reflect the objective, uh, again, some kind of objective, scientific, interest-free consensus that the smartest people have agreed on. It's a product of power relations. So we really have to struggle and work to find out the truth about any issue. And it's, it's, kind of a, it's a lifelong journey, whatever we're talking about, be it current affairs, be it trying to understand ourselves or deep philosophical questions. It's, it's an ongoing journey. And you have to become quite sceptical about the functioning of society, I think, to be relatively successful in um, seeking out sound sources, getting to the habit of seeking evidence, finding evidence, and attempting to, I suppose, apply the basic principles of the scientific method in, in your in your daily life. But of course, you know, we live in a democracy. I get to, I get to vote. We get to vote these leaders out, right? Of course we do, right. Um, right, so the whole notion of well, we live in a free society, I think that ex- in itself is one of the most pervasive myths about freedom that we have. I think fundamentally we live in a capitalist society and what we have is the pleasant mask of liberalism hiding a horribly unjust, unsustainable, unequal system. I think to call it a democracy is to really debase the term democracy. Or we could just say, look, democracy exists on a spectrum. There are certain democratic elements that we have, and they are valuable, and they lead to some valuable outcomes in our society. But wow, how can we possibly have a democracy according to the principle of one person, one vote, when wealth is so concentrated that... In pretty much every area that we look at, the process, the democratic process, is corrupted by the principle of one pound, one vote, where you know a few members and a few entities have, in effect, billions of more or millions of more votes than you know the majority of the population. Let's. Um, I wanted to get to you know the idea of one one dollar, one vote, one pound, one vote. The yes. idea that you know elections. Obviously, we were just talking about the concentration of ownership of the media, and like clearly, you know, it's it's crazy to suggest that we have you know a, a free democracy when opinion is so obviously formed by the ownership of the media. Anyway, but also I wanted to talk about this idea that which you which you just raised about you know lobbyists and and you know and corporations. Funding political parties and also lobby, you know, lobbyists lobbying governments as well, um, which has, which clearly has much more influence on government policy both ways. Either you know, pharmaceutical companies either lobbying the government or massively funding the uh, the political party that the the government eventually comes from. Clearly, is it has more power than than my one X on a on a piece of paper does. Right, and it's a simple point. But the implications are profound. To what extent can a democracy function in that sort of environment? And so what we've had over the last century is a battle between these two logics, the logic of the market, where we have this principle of one pound, one vote, and the kind of democratic logic, which we can sum up as one person, one vote. And democratic logic has been losing pretty consistently, decade after decade, and wealth has been concentrated. And it's this feedback effect where the more concentrated wealth becomes the more that entities like corporations can use that economic power to subvert the political process, to change the rules of the game, to yet yield even greater concentration of wealth for themselves. And we see this again and again in all kinds of subsidies. I think one of the most remarkable studies to come out in recent times came out last year, 2015, from the IMF, which arrived at the estimate that the world's government subsidised the fossil fuel industry to the tune of $10 million a minute, which, I mean, not just one industry, but, I mean, it's astounding, especially given the fact that the fossil fuel industry is destroying the conditions for life on Earth. Mm-hmm. And we have about as strong as a consensus on that point as you can have within the scientific community. So that, that's far off from a kind of a political system which serves the interests of the majority. I mean, that's not a democratic system. And interestingly, there have been a number of academic studies. For example, one came out in Princeton a year or two ago, which, again, 
looked at the evidence, it looked at the influence that voters had on policy, it looked at the influence that corporations had on policy, and it found that voters had almost zero impact on policies which would impact negatively on corporations. They concluded that the United States was an oligarchy, it wasn't democracy. Um, it was just incorrect to use the term, you know, highly misleading. So yeah, in all kinds of ways, wealth corrupts the ideal of democracy. Of course, it's incredibly important to maintain this facade. Otherwise, people will revolt. There are, this is not to say there are no elements. And I think it's, you know, again, incumbent on all of us to try and exploit the degree of freedom that we do have. And there are freedoms that exist in our society which are incredibly valuable. But they were never handed down to us from on high. They were won by popular struggle. Again and again, we see that. And although they're being eroded, they, their existence does provide us with an opportunity to if you like, democratise the state and redistribute wealth and actually get closer to something like a democracy. I'm Jay Courtney Sullivan. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. So we've talked about the, who owns the press and who buys the elections. You talk in the book about the idea of the oxymoronic idea of free markets. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of skip over that bit because I want to get to your conclusion, but just to say that, you know, obviously the... The last thing corporations want is an actual free market in any shape or form. They, they like their monopolies. Um, but you end the book with a, a series of, of chapters that look at you know ways in which we can sort of like regain an idea of freedom. In the first of those, which you talk about creativity and ways in which we can imagine, use the arts to imagine better ideas of the world. Let's talk about that first of all. Yeah. So after spending you know over half the book looking at the limits in our freedom, I arrive at, I think, what's an important question. How should we define freedom? How should we actually think about freedom in a, in a kind of positive way? And for me, I think freedom is really the capacity to make choices that serve what we truly value. It's a capacity to create a vision that truly inspires us, that is truly meaningful to us. Now, this brings in a few, this raises a few questions straight away. What do we truly value? What is truly meaningful to us? I think we shouldn't take for granted that we have those answers at our fingertips. They're quite profound, and again, it's um, a, an ongoing journey to, to understand ourselves. We are wrong so often about not simply what we value in an ultimate sense, but the steps to achieving, to creating what we value. So we see this in many areas, so just going back to, let's say, the political system. People vote against their interests again and again and again. They are often... Well, we are often misinformed about very important aspects of our society, which lead us to, you know, support ideologies and institutions and politicians who have very little concern about our own particular interests or economic situation and actually helps to make life a lot more difficult for us. Um, that's just one area, but I think on a daily basis in the relationships we choose, uh, the diets that we have, all kinds of things, we make choices which actually, with greater understanding... Uh, we wouldn't make. So this instantly brings in knowledge as a kind of key component of a, a meaningful notion of freedom, that as we develop our understanding, as our models of the world become more and more accurate, we empower ourselves to better achieve that which we find valuable and better understand what actually is valuable to us. You mentioned earlier on that you know there are some aspects of democracy, democracy on a spectrum. I think you, you know you described it as, and clearly that you know there are there are some areas where a form of democracy does function. So let's talk about ways in which we can. You, you, you share some ideas in the book of ways in which we can sort of change power structures and the way society is set up and bring more democracy into it. Democratizing ownership, democratizing money. Tell us about some of those things. Right. So if we think of democracy as essentially having two powerful justifications behind it. One is self-defence, that if we let other people make decisions that are going to affect our lives in significant ways, then we leave ourselves extremely vulnerable to those people. And the fight to democratise society is very often the fight to gain control over our own lives, because we regard ourselves and our communities as a better judge of our interests and as a more dependable, trustworthy uh, judge of what's going to be best for us than distant politicians or uh, economic entities. So self-defence is one aspect, and another aspect is self-development. The idea that there's something extremely valuable to be taken from participating 
in the management of our own lives. It's how we mature, it's how we learn, it's how we develop. Um, yes, we're all going to make mistakes. We, there are limitations on our, on our knowledge. We are sometimes impatient, in, in we, we, we don't learn enough. Um, we're going to take wrong turnings in our life. But that process is surely how we exercise our freedom and develop our capacities sorry, in a way that next time we, write, we, we are in a situation where we have to make a choice, we can then feel more empowered to act in a free way. So we have self-development and we have self-defence as two justifications for democracy. So then we have to say, well, why should we limit the principle of democracy to one system? So let's say our electoral system. Why is it almost completely absent in the economy, in the market system? When we go to school or when we go to work, the system that we encounter is probably best described as a kind of autocracy or um, dictatorship. There are no votes. We are told what to do. There are very um, rigid parameters. Now, it might seem kind of like wishful thinking to think that you could have an effective, efficient workplace while also integrating these key principles of democracy and distributing decision-making power. But there are really compelling examples that exist already in our, in our current system. So I write about the example of, of Mondragon in Spain, which is the largest cooperative in the world. It uh, has a kind of turnover of close to 10 to 12 billion euros a year. Um, and this is a system in, in which workers get to vote on the pay of their bosses. It's a system in which the majority of the people who do the labour uh, in this organisation get to decide what to do with the profits. They have ownership, basically, over, over their lives, their work lives and their institution. They are, they are heavily invested. And it's an incredibly... It's proven to be an incredibly efficient and durable organisation. And there are many examples of it which tweak various aspects. Job sharing to get rid of this relationship where there are just bosses and workers, where instead you have teams of people in which tasks and roles are rotated to some extent so that forms of knowledge aren't monopolised, which can create its own forms of, of oppression and, and, and inequality. So looking about, I was actually doing the research for the book, I was heartened and inspired by what's already out there. The same is true for looking at education systems. Um, one of the most successful countries in this respect is Finland, and within their schools there's not only a lot of democracy, but there's a real... There's a very powerful strain of uh, egalitarianism running through the whole system. That private schools are illegal. Students have great say over what they study. And actually they are continually experimenting and innovating with the way knowledge is divided up and delivered. So they, the traditional subjects of English, mathematics, history, are to some extent being phased out in favour of a more holistic approach which tries to emphasise the connections between subjects. So whether we're talking about education or the workplace or even our money system, I mean, I'll just briefly touch on that. You know, we have a money system, uh, a monetary system in which the majority of the money that exists in our economy has been created not by the state, but by private banks, um, close to 97% of, of all currency. And that's a huge power to hand over to a private institu institution whose legally mandated priority is short-term profit. It's not the betterment of society, it's short-term profit. So they have a massive say over how much currency is created and where it's invested. And of course, money will get invested in the places that tend to promise the greatest short-term um, return. Now that, unfortunately, doesn't overlap with what's best for society environmentally or, or, or socially. So, you know, many people have said, well, you know, this is... Uh, it's not an efficient system, it's not an effective system... It's not a democratic system. We need to take back that control. And really, it's, even in terms of looking at how to solve the environmental crisis, if we do not assert democratic control over the majority of the world's resources, if we do not determine where they are invested and where they are not invested, I think there is next to no chance of addressing the profound crises that we're facing. There's a jurist called Louis Brandes, that I quote in the book. And he regarded corporations as akin to kind of Frankenstein monsters. These were entities that had been created by the state, yet threatened to overthrow the state. They are legally obligated to maximise short-term profits. The first obligation is to the shareholders. In fact, in effect, it's illegal for corporations 
to place any other concern, be it social or environmental, above this imperative, this profit imperative. Now, unfortunately, these entities have become very powerful. And given their design, you know, we're very familiar with the kind of dystopian futures in which AI machines take over and destroy humanity and subjugate us. But actually, that's not the greatest threat. The greatest threat comes from the economic system we've designed and the economic entities that we have given birth to. Um, they are truly threatening to you know, lead us over the cliff of, I think, social and, uh, and the environmental precipice, if you like. So although I think a lot of people would describe it as radical to challenge a logic of capitalism, mm-hmm. to suggest that we need massive redistribution of wealth, I would think it's the only rational response to the extent of the crises that we're currently facing. Just one final question then. Boils down to why can't we just be nicer to each other? You mentioned empathy earlier. How can we make compassion, empathy, into an actual, you know, like a political tool, something that we incorporate into how society is run, how to make society better by just being more compassionate to each other? How do we do that? I think how do we do that? I think we change our assumptions, we improve our model of reality. We do not simply replicate the idea that. If you're a rational adult, you are responsible for who who you are and what what you do. I think it's about really cultivating across society, through education, through art, um, through political movements, the idea that every brain is unique, that we can never compare the capacities and and lives of two individuals, um, that behaviour follows from the way our brains are constructed, and therefore we have to ditch notions of retribution, blame and credit think in a much more rational, scientific way about behaviour. Now, you know, I, I'm rather pleased at the kind of the confluence between science and these kind of moral teachings, which have existed a long time in many traditions, you know, particularly Eastern traditions, we can look at Buddhism, the importance of compassion and empathy. In Christianity, we have forgiveness, I and mean, there's a little contradiction within these traditions. The opposites also exist, but we can certainly find these ideas there too. But it seems to me that if we follow through the implications of our scientific understanding of human beings then it does push us in a much more empathetic and much more compassionate direction. But there is, there is an important caveat that I, I think we should make, and that's about the whole idea of empathy. Because empathy can be a very destructive force. So I think we need to distinguish between bounded empathy and unbounded empathy. Governments routinely cultivate bounded empathy, for example, in the form of patriotism. Religious traditions cultivate bounded empathy when we identify far more with those who are similar to us who who share our uh, particular beliefs who dress like us and to varying degrees we dehumanize those who you know live in another country who share different beliefs and you know their cultural norms vary significantly from our own so empathy can actually be a way of simply solidifying the bonds between one in-group while distancing that group from the rest of humanity I think soldiers are routinely encouraged to think of the other people in their unit as a family. I mean, it's never easy to get someone to go and shoot a stranger. I think the most effective way that's been found is to say, if you don't, those close to you are going to be put in danger. Those other people in your unit and those people back at home are... So it's empathy for the in-group, which is often a very powerful motivator for violence, division, uh, for war... So what we see throughout our society, and this is one of the control mechanisms we were talking about earlier, is empathy is channelled to where it's politically useful. So if we talk about empathy, we always have to talk about unbounded empathy. Literally unbounded in the sense of, let's let's not think in terms of borders, um, geographical location, but then metaphorical boundaries of of identity, um, they take many forms. But when we do that, when we do think in terms of unbounded empathy, I think we we're really engaging with a profoundly powerful idea with revolutionary force to change society. But this idea, this way of looking at the world, is incompatible with our current economic system. It's incompatible with the norms which are encouraged and repeated by our society. It's incompatible with the idea that we should you know, frown upon welfare claimants, that we should get rid of immigrants and you know, turn the other way as tens of thousands of people drown in the Mediterranean. The implications, I think most people will go, you know, when you talk about empathy, they'll go with you up to a point, sounds really great, sounds really positive, and you say, but this means essentially a global revolution, or it's certainly a transformation in our economic and political system. If you truly believe that every life is valuable, 
And, you know, that's essentially... Empathy is about putting yourself in someone else's shoes and, in a sense, finding yourself in their life, finding a kind of common humanity that binds us all together. Then it completely... You, you can no longer happily walk by the, the homeless person on the street or, you know, the, the hundreds of thousands of children that, that died in Iraq as a result of sanctions imposed by the US and UK. That weighs on us in an incredibly powerful way. It's, it's a burden, empathy. And yet I see no way of truly improving society, truly, again, even addressing the environmental crisis, without starting from the assumption that, you know, no individual, no nation, um, no race is more valuable or entitled than any other. The implications are truly radical when you begin to see the world that way. I've been talking to Raul Martinez. We've been talking about creating freedom, power control and the fight for our future, which is out now from Canongate Books. Raul, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.